I'm definitely not backed by the sort of the Financial Times, <laughs> like Sifter or something. Like I, I have no one to answer to, which means that I can say uh, whatever I want. I can write whatever I want. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Gons, very well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for having me. It's, it's been a while. You are the founder of the Seed Table newsletter, where you actually write about the European tech landscape. And that newsletter goes out to 13,000 subscribers every week. And besides that, you're also responsible for growth at OnDeck, a really cool founder community. And yeah, first of all, we want to talk about your personal background. You are actually also based in Argentina right now, where you grew up and went to university in 2012. You then decided to stop studying and dropped out of university. So what led you to that step? Um, you know, many people talk about it, but there's rarely anyone that we have in the interview who can actually talk about that firsthand. So why did you decide to stop university? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm normally based in Barcelona, but I'm born and raised in Argentina. And I'm essentially just typical COVID story. Came here in March, take care of some family stuff and got stuck. Now I've been just writing COVID here. Uh, I'm probably going to go back to Barcelona in January if, of course, um, the sort of the the second outbreak uh, slows down. But sort of let me give you some context. Uh, I started, so my background is in growth. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, I lead growth at a company called OnDeck. And I started dabbling with um, just technology and startups and internet marketing and, and just growth uh, when I was a teenager in high school. So I started just, uh, I either created or bought websites of Flippa and then grew them a bit and sold them. So I just flipped websites for, for a bit. Um, and that's sort of how I got my, my, how I got started in technology or tech adjacent maybe. Um, but in 2009, uh, I got out of high school and decided to enter college, just typical college. Just, uh, I wanted to study uh, architecture. Um, the first year went great, just typical college student. I, I sort of, I had hit pause on the sort of the internet marketing stuff. But the second year, I realized that yes, I loved architecture, um, but I really loved marketing and, and building companies and just growing companies. So um, I, I, I sort of transferred away from architecture. I say, okay, what's the closest thing to just tech? I thought economics was the closest thing to tech. So I transferred to, to sort of economics for about six months. That's when I, when I sort of have friends, he asked me, hey, I'm building this, this business. Uh, it was a direct-to-consumer e-commerce company back then. It was like 2011 or something like that. Um, like way before direct-to-consumer was, was cool. And he said, hey, I'm building this. Uh, how can I grow it? And I just gave him like a sort of a three-hour like growth masterclass. And at the end of the class, he said, hey, like, do you want to join as a co-founder? I'm like, sure. So uh, we started that company, raised some money, and that's what, yeah. It's not that I quit college. I just never went back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. So you, there was basically the opportunity. So in that regard, I, I think 
you also have a clear take. Many people actually here in Switzerland, you know, where we are based, they think that university education is actually necessary uh, to become a successful entrepreneur. What do you think about that statement? I think that's that's not accurate. And, and to be honest, I, I went to college mostly because my parents wanted me to go to college. Uh, I, I've always been sort of entrepreneurial. Yes, I, I loved architecture and I still do. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I wasn't sort of a huge fan of college back then. I'm still not, I'm not a huge fan of college right now, unless you, you want to do, I don't know, like... Uh, if, if you want to become a doctor or a lawyer, then yeah, absolutely go to college. But if you want to start a company, then you can probably uh, do a lot more with four years and all that money. If you just go and start a company or maybe intern at a startup for a year and then go build your own thing or something. So I would say that you definitely don't need to go to college to start a company. And yeah, I'm a big proponent of that. Eventually my kids, I'm going to give them the option uh, to just pick. Let them choose. Exactly. But I also wonder, where does your entrepreneurship interest come from? Were there any entrepreneurs in your family that inspired you? Or no, who planted that entrepreneurial seed in your head? That's a great question. Um, so my, my, dad, my dad is a doctor. Um, he, about 20 years, so he started just a typical doctor path. Uh, just a bunch of years of college, then residency, then he started climbing down the sort of the doctor's corporate ladder. Uh, eventually, he became sort of the chief of uh, gynecology for, for a hospital here, and he ended up starting his, his own clinic. Um, so a bit from that, I guess. Uh, it's, it's weird. I always think of my dad as a doctor first, entrepreneur second, but probably it's the other way around. Um, and then my, my, grand, my granddad, he, he was not an entrepreneur, but definitely a businessman. Uh, so maybe from that, um, I had great memories from him. Uh, I was a kid when he passed away, uh, I think like nine or something. I, I have great memories, but I, I, I can't really say that, that he was like an inspiration, but maybe some subconsciously, some subconsciously I'd say. So maybe from there, I, I don't have any, any like huge, um, uh, sort of entrepreneurial inspiration in my life it's just everyone around me has been very very hard working so maybe that's it got it yeah i mean that per se is already a good inspiration source i would say then you consulted your friend where you then eventually also became a co-founder in in the growth sector so i wonder when you didn't you know really were taught about these subjects of growth and building a company at, at the university or college how do you actually teach yourself where did you learn how to do growth the right way? Did you just go out there and, and, and test things your, yourself? Did you consume any specific resources along the way? What helped you to build up that knowledge? Absolutely. So funny thing is I've never met a great growth person who has a marketing degree uh, from college. <laughs> um, maybe I should expand my network, but uh, definitely. Uh, the thing is with sort of learning marketing or growth at college is that Yes, the frameworks and the strategies are sort of, they maintain over time, but the tactics change so much that it's impossible to, for the college curriculum to sort of keep up the pace. Uh, so I learned outside of college, right? I studied architecture, then economics. Um, I learned, A, by reading a ton of line, on, online, just article, blogs. I paid for courses that I probably shouldn't have paid back then because uh, they were too expensive. Um, 
and then by doing. Uh, I have this rule uh, that if, if it's about education, so a course or a book uh, or a seminar or something like that that I really want to do, I just pay for it, even though I shouldn't. But that, like, that has paid off for me, like a thousand X, sort of that rule throughout my life, right? If I want a book, I just go and buy it. If I want a course, I just go and buy it. Uh, right, so that, that that has definitely paid off uh, for me. Uh, yeah, but learning by by doing. Man. Uh, when you are sort of the the sort of co-founder of your own company and you need to grow, you just do whatever it takes to to grow. Uh, you try everything from press uh, to paid advertising to just handing out flyers to and this is a true story like dressing up like Santa and just giving like uh, the the company started as a shoe company that was sort of the product that we were selling direct to consumer. Uh, when most of the companies were just going through retailers, we dressed up like Santa uh, with a sort of a box of shoes. And we went to hospitals and just to, to everyone and just started giving away shoes and just made, made up sort of a PR stunt out of it. So um, yeah, that's that's how I learned, I'd say. And then like you're, you're seeing my bookshelf uh, behind me and it's, I'm constantly learning. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely constantly learning. Awesome. Are there any like favorite resources um, or, you know, like books that you can recommend to people that are interested to get started with the growth part? What would you recommend to a starter, your top five pick? Absolutely. So there's this company uh, called Demand Curve. They put out some great uh, growth content. Then there's this guy called Ryan Culp. He also has some great growth content. If you're thinking about books, uh, there's one called Traction, uh, and there's another one called Growth Hacking. Like those, those are helpful. Uh, So that's, I think that's a pretty good start, I'd say. Awesome. Yeah. I also read some of them and I especially like Traction Growth Marketing, uh, both really, really good starting points. So then you, you sold your, you know, direct-to-consumer uh, products with the shoes where you started, but then eventually you found out that you don't really want to sell physical products. So how did it came to that realization and what did you do afterwards? Yeah, the, the realization came when we were selling, like we were selling a bunch of shoes online, like we were doing really well, uh, and that was sort of paid for my salary and everything, and I didn't wear the shoes. I wear buns and I said, okay, I really don't like this. Uh, I don't want to sort of sell stuff I'm not passionate about. And yes, like this is growing, this works, this is fun, uh, but this is not me. I don't want to be the shoe guy. Uh, so uh, after sort of a sort of a bunch of bumps, uh, I ended up selling uh, my equity back to, to my co-founders. Um, so that's sort of how it worked. And, and for a kid, uh, it wasn't a lot of money, but it definitely gave me some uh, optionality. But then in 2014 and onwards from there, you basically hung your co-founder coat and just started working for other companies, uh, mainly focused on the growth part, as you already did in the early days. What led to that, you know, shift then? Uh, because you, always, of course, also still had to pay your bills, I can imagine. And also, did you miss not having your own company anymore? Yeah, great question. So. I spent a year in the U.S. and uh, uh, with another company that we maybe like we shouldn't get that much into it because it's a super boring story. But after that, I came back to Argentina and to be honest, I needed cash. Uh, so I said, okay, like, I need to go get some clients. Uh, I had made, made some connections in the U.S. So I started doing that. Uh, I worked sort of freelance for, for some companies uh, in the U.S., some companies out of Asia and just like, 
yeah, that, and that never stopped really. Uh, in a sense, I do miss uh, like working on my own stuff, but not a hundred percent. Like eventually, yes. Uh, maybe Seed Table is sort of my side project that really uh, solves that for me. That's my own thing. Uh, but I do enjoy working on a team and being part of sort of something that's that's bigger. Awesome. And yeah, let's talk about C-Table. You started and created the newsletter C-Table in 2019. Um, I think originally just to share with your friends. So please tell us more about that friend group and the early days of C-Table. Yeah, absolutely. So I wrote, so he has to know this, uh, but I wrote the sort of the first edition of C-Table with a, with a friend called John uh, in mind. Uh, he's from the US. I met him while I was living in Cincinnati. And, um, he... He moved to Europe uh, back then to work for a, for a German company out of Berlin. Um, so yeah, we were like, I was writing C table with him in mind, and he was my probably one of my first uh, readers. I also had a couple of other connections, but it was like a couple dozen people uh, at tops, uh, and that went on for I'd say for a few editions. I don't know how many, but sometime in early 2019. I think uh, I wrote a piece on uh, so Spotify uh, acquiring a company called uh, Gimlet. Uh, so Gimlet is from the US, but Spotify, as we all know, is, is from Sweden. So it was sort of tangentially related to European tech. And I wrote uh, a, a sort of a perspective on that and I, why, why I thought it was a very, very interesting deal for European tech. Uh, it, it didn't really go viral, but it started making the rounds in sort of tech Twitter. And that gave me the momentum to just keep writing and keep going past a sort of my sort of initial dozen friends. Awesome. You know, what's also interesting for me is um, you, you just mentioned that you wrote about European tech. But I mean, of course, you're based in, in Barcelona, usually if COVID is not there. But still, you know, growing up in Argentina, spending uh, some time in the U.S., Europe might not be the, the logical, natural next step to, to write about. So why did you decide to really focus on, on Europe? Is, is that just because you saw a lack of, of quality newsletters in that regard? Or why was the choice Europe? Yeah, I was, I, uh, I've been living in Europe for, for a while now. Um, I did, like from 2015, I think. Uh, I spent some time in Italy, some time in, 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 in France, uh, then Barcelona. And I wrote seat table a because i wanted something like that to exist but b and this is like super selfish but it's true because i thought that was a good way to sort of do that work and to get like into european tech i've always worked with startups but i've been working remotely and i didn't move to europe for a job uh i moved to europe because my former girlfriend was doing a master's degree uh so it's not that like i went into an office and just made a bunch of friends in tech uh so i said okay let's let's try this and i think it worked at least <laughs> at least for that Absolutely. Yeah, today you have 13,000 subscribers that receive your newsletter uh, every week. So when did you actually realize that this newsletter has the potential to be much bigger than just your initial friend group? Also after the, the Twitter, you know, viral hit that you landed there. Yeah, yeah, I think that was the first step. But then when I was at the sort of the four or 5,000 mark, uh, and then I was... I, I saw someone I really, really admire uh, subscribe and then email me saying, hey, like this was great. And then I replied and we jumped on a call and I said, oh, like shit, like this is real. Uh, so 
maybe I think that was like I was at the four or five k mark, and then sort of the the a the, the volume, so just having thousands of subscribers like that. So that was totally unexpected to me. And the other one is just having this sort of this person who who I really, really admire reach out to me and say, hey, I really love your stuff. Let's talk. Like, well, like maybe like, like imposter syndrome that I have, and I still have like. Um, maybe it's not a hundred percent real. Like maybe, uh, I'm doing something okay ish. <laughs> <laughs> I think a bit more than okay ish, but uh, talking about the uniqueness of, of a seed table. So what, what do you think really differentiates it from other newsletters that are out there? What makes it special and unique compared to newsletters, but also other platforms that people could uh, subscribe to or buy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think two things. The first one is, or what really sort of started generating some traction is that, well, first, there weren't that many newsletters out there, so that was one thing. But really, I'm an outsider to European tech. I'm not an investor. I'm not a VC. Uh, I'm not a CEO of a big company. Like, I have no stake in the game, right? Uh, the market is the one who decides if they care about what I write or not. Right, so um, I'm I'm definitely not backed by the sort of the Financial Times, <laughs> like Sifter or something. Like I, I have no one to answer to, which means that I can say uh, whatever I want. I can write whatever I want, uh, and if that's sort of I don't know if that is a critique about how I know the EU Commission handles uh, antitrust, then I can say that, and that's that that's not going to be the problem. Uh, or at least not so far, right? I don't have advertisers who, who say, hey, don't talk about that because I don't want to be associated with that. So that's one thing, just being an outsider and having the possibility to say whatever I want to say. Uh, so that's one. And then over the past few months, I'd say the past six months, I've been doing sort of this very, very deep uh, strategic uh, pieces on specific either uh, ecosystems or companies. Uh, and I've analyzed companies like uh, Klarna, for instance, and I really put my sort of business strategy slash growth person hat on, and I looked at the companies from that perspective. So I really thought about how, I don't know, how Gymshark grew to a billion dollar company with zero outside investment, for instance. Why Klarna is such a fantastic company and why it's gonna be so hard to disrupt, for instance. So really, I think those reasons, like this, I'm a very, very deep strategic sort of pieces and that just being an outsider and being able to say whatever I want to say. Don't you just hate it when you listen to a really great podcast, but you have no one to talk to about it? We do too. And that's why you should give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. The wider our reach is, the more Swisspreneur fans will pop up all around you. Yeah, and I also like personally, for everybody that hasn't checked out the newsletter yet, uh, please do it because these deep dives, they are insanely valuable and eye-opening for, from my personal experience. It's really, really good content. The challenge there is also, you know, talking about the business model. So first, the newsletter was completely free of charge. And then eventually, you also decided to add a paywall, a, a premium subscription to get the really like the long-form content on a regular basis. So why did you decide to take that step and how has it actually also affected uh, your subscribers to a certain degree? Yeah, good question. So uh, seat table is expensive to run, 
Uh, there's servers, I got a bunch of traffic. Uh, there's researchers, there's a bunch of other software that I use. So I said, hey, like, I need to start uh, monetizing this and maybe, like, I don't need to get rich out of this, but maybe not, I don't know, lose a thousand euros every month in software and servers and researchers. So um, I say, okay, what's the best way to monetize? And, and something I'm obsessed about is incentives. Um, so, and I thought I, I was considering two options. So either sponsorships, that's the typical route, and then um, just paid subscribers. And I thought that, and I'm not sure if I was correct or not, but what I was sort of, what I reasoned back then was that if I'm paid for writing quality content because people want to pay 100 euros a year just to read what I write, then that's going to ensure that I write the best stuff and I invest both time and resources and money just writing the best stuff. So I say, okay, if I'm sort of supported by readers, then like that's the ideal situation because I'm not only I'm incentivized to write the best stuff, but also I have... No, no, I, I don't really, but I, like sort of the situation is I would have like thousands of customers, right, who, who, who I need to respond to instead of just a couple of advertisers that if they pull out, uh, I would be sort of uh, stopping my trucks, if that makes sense. So that, that's why I decided to go with the, with the sort of the paid um, subscribers option. I still do some sponsorships here and there with very, very select companies. So uh, for instance, I partner up with the Circle CI team and shout out to them. They've been incredible, but I'm very, very selective uh, about who I work with for this, right? Uh, I got probably three or four inbound requests for sponsorships every day. And maybe I'm leaving money on the table. Uh, not all, like some of them are very, very crappy, but I'd say one or two are, are real. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm focused in just serving my readers, I think. Makes sense. Um, you know, a big, I think one or two years ago, Tim Ferriss also switched from a sponsor model in his podcast to a subscription-based model, but then really quickly reverted back to the sponsor model because there were not that many people signing up. So I just wonder, how is your experience? Because for me, I, I loved what Tim was doing there. I think like, hey, this is so cool. He has a huge like audience and fan base that he built, but it seems to even, he was not able to really then transform that to a subscription model. So maybe newsletters here is a bit different than podcasts because podcasts are usually available on, on you know, easily available on all the, the public platforms. But uh, I just wonder, like, how would you compare that and uh, how is your experience after switching so far? I think Tim Ferriss has a different ambition level than I do, right? <laughs> so <laughs> maybe what, what didn't work for him could have worked for me. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the change, right? There's the, the, the main problem is um, if you put some of your best stuff behind a paywall, paywall then you're essentially shooting your like your growth flywheel because most of the stuff that you put out there is going to be for your free subscribers and not for your free subscribers who are going to be able to share that with the rest of the world and bring new subscribers in. So I did a bunch of stuff to just sort of uh, go outside that problem. I still do a bunch of stuff for free subscribers. I want to make sure that they have a great experience. Uh, I was a lot more, uh, act I started being a lot more active on Twitter. Uh, I started a podcast. So um, like, yeah, I'd say I'm overall very happy with the decision, right? Um, it's it's not like I'm definitely not Tim Ferriss, but Seed Table 
brings enough cash that I will sort of need to answer to anyone at this point, if that makes sense. Uh, like in Paul Graham terms, like I'm a, I'm a cockroach, right? Like I can just keep doing this over and over again. Uh, I ended up joining on deck uh, to lead growth, but that's, I guess, a, a different story. Like I still have C-table. Awesome. And yeah, let's also talk about, you know, you mentioned the different content formats. Like there's also podcasts now, there's stuff for free users, but also for the paid subscribers, you're active on Twitter. So how do you manage all of that? Basically, what do you focus on and where do you also get help for research, for example, or other stuff from external people? So the main question, what do you do yourself and what do you actually outsource uh, as part of your offering? Yeah, so I do the stuff I'm uniquely qualified for, and that is writing, podcasting, and all that stuff. For the other things, like editing the podcast or uh, doing research on whatever company, right? Like sometimes I do research myself, but I usually outsource all that. Uh, at first, I did myself, uh, but I'm at a point in which I also have a bunch of responsibilities with on deck, uh, and I'm doing a million things for seat tables. So um, I still write every single thing myself. Uh, I still have every single podcast conversation myself, but all the sort of behind the scenes support that allows me to do that, um, I outsource that. Makes sense. And where did you find the people? Do they like work for you or are these freelancers that you found on a platform? Where did you hire uh, the right people to support you on this? Yeah, so uh, I have a freelancer who helps me with research, and then my brother, he, he adds my podcasts. Okay. And did you use any platforms to find them, like Fiverr or Upwork, or where did you find them? No, just uh, sorry, I didn't have a better answer for you on this one, but just personal connections. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I, I've used Upwork and other stuff in the past, but not, like, not, for, not for this. I didn't have to. Got it. So now let's also talk about Europe as a startup ecosystem, um, something that you've been following and analyzing over the past months and years. OnDeck actually recently also uh, launched their first uh, Europe cohort, right? So from my perspective, where do you think the, the European ecosystem is heading as a whole ecosystem first? So where, where do you see the trends? There is uh, some, in some countries you have upwards trends, in others you have downward trends. Where do you see Europe as a whole compared to the other big ecosystem like the US or also China uh, coming up? Yeah, great question. Um, so first, just to clarify, uh, OnDeck didn't launch uh, sort of a Europe-specific cohort, but really added like a European layer on top of the existing cohort. So it's just one global network with like Europe-specific fellows and content and guests and VC leaders and meetups and all that stuff. But you just still get access to like people from New York or Asia or the Valley or whatever. Uh, but on the sort of European tech question uh, compared to the, to the other ecosystems, I think this was like, this was something unknown a few months ago uh, when COVID hit, like we, like as the most like nascent ecosystem compared to the U S and, uh, and China, like the big unknown was how was, COVID gonna affect not only short term, but also long term, right? This is gonna have like long lasting damaging effects to the ecosystem. And like, that was really an unknown. And, and I looked at a bunch of different things over time. I looked at capital raise and at funds started at companies, uh, like early stage company formation and a bunch of different things. And I think, and, and we'll see when, when Atomico puts out the state of Europe, European tech report in a couple of weeks, but 
it looks like Europe has been able to sort of sustain the pandemic pretty well. Uh, the numbers are, 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 are good. So capital raised uh, is holding up year over year. Funds raised are definitely uh, either holding up or growing year over year. So that's there's a lot of fresh capital uh, going around. And that if, if, if you sort of look, um, Excel released their uh, Euroscape, the report on sort of SaaS and cloud unicorns. And you can see how Europe has been sort of shortening the gap between Europe and the U.S. in terms of base. So if you look at, let's say, 2016, like the U.S. raised like six X, uh, like six times uh, more capital in Europe. And the last year, this year, it was something like two X, sort of double. So we're definitely sort of closing the gap. The other thing that's interesting is that because of the pandemic, because uh, like and, and, and how that's affecting remote work, uh, because of all the work that the European Commission and the multiple European countries are doing with uh, visas, uh, tech visas and startup visas, and how the U.S. is becoming a more sort of a more inwards uh, country and a more inwards ecosystem, then there's this gap opening up for what I call the, the default place for ambitious founders. So for the past, I don't know, 30, 40 years, like the US was default place for ambitious people. If you wanted to start a company, you went to Silicon Valley, right? I, like that was a no-brainer. Uh, you had the money, you had the connections, you had the talent, and you, you had the serendipity, right? That's all, that was all going on in, I don't know, like 50 or whatever, 100 kilometer radius. Uh, but now that's changing. Uh, now that's changing, and with uh, the, the the sort of the the variables that I mentioned, and then uh, things like OnDeck that are sort of threading all these communities in the cloud, then that's that's definitely changing. And I, I could see a world in which Europe could be maybe not the default path, but maybe a more acceptable path for ambitious founders to go start their companies. Um, and I had this tweet um, a couple of weeks ago that said like some of the fastest growing companies that come out of this pandemic or that solve like key issues during the pandemic are European. I think Hopin, right? Uh, probably the fastest company, uh, like the fastest growing company ever and it's European. And a decade ago, that company would have been built in the Valley. And yes, like we're still seeing great companies being built in the Valley, but it's not exclusive to San Francisco, right? It's not exclusive to, to, to the US. Uh, so that's, in that sense, when you look at that and when you look at the fact that we were able to sort of handle the pandemic pretty well, then I'm, I'm, I'm long Europe, if that makes sense. Absolutely. From your perspective, what is still missing in Europe, you know, in order to, to really get us to what you just described? What, what do we still need to get our homework done in order to, to get us there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if, if I had to sum up the issue in one sort of uh, sort of sentence is we still need to put more fire on this sort of capital and talent uh, flywheel. So companies are started, companies raise money, companies get sold, and that, that capital sort of cascades down to the ecosystem. So if you think about uh, Allegro, which is this huge, huge, huge Polish company, uh, and they, they IPO'd valuation $19 billion huge, huge, huge company that like, if you look at the, at the, at the S1, at the, at the S1 and then at the sort of the 
all the prospectors and everything, you can see that most of that money is going to be used to uh, pay for that and pay bonuses to executives. Uh, that's not coming back down to the ecosystem. Like instead of minting a couple hundred millionaires, then what Allegro is doing for Polish tech and European tech is close to nothing. Uh, so we still need to like tighten a few things, right? Uh, our stock option schemes, for instance, or just how we think about liquidity at the top. So there are a few things that we need to take care of. And I think if I had to sum it up is how can we make sure that this sort of talent plus capital flywheel is always looping around. This is actually also a big discussion that we have here in Switzerland. So the, the value of equity is not really clear to many people. So they don't understand what the equity that you get today can be worth tomorrow. From your perspective, how could we change that? I mean, of course, talking about it and, and having more people, you know, participating in, in the company with options uh, and, and participation plans. What, what else is there? How, how can we really make that happen and not just talk about it from your perspective? Right. Uh, I think having a sort of a European, a Europe-wide, like, clear stock option schemes would be super, super helpful. Like, right now, which country, like, Europe is fragmented uh, along a bunch of different sort of spectrums. And, like, you could say, like, cultures and languages and borders and payment methods and, and everything. But one thing is, like, stock options. Like, Estonian stock options look nothing uh, compared to, like, German stock options, uh, right? It's like, it's one, one of those sayings, like, never take German stock options, <laughs> Uh, so that's one thing, just having a unified uh, sort of stock option scheme. And I know the like the European Commission uh, is is working on that. Uh, it's working on the sort of the startup nation standard, and they're being pushed by the folks at Index and the sort of the not optional uh, team. And they've been doing incredible work around that. And the other thing is, yes, you 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 need to have a like a great option scheme, but you also need to have like those big companies that uh, get acquired or get IPO'd, right? Uh, so um, just having companies that really want to go like uh, to the like to the other side of the world, if that makes sense, right? Companies that want to go big, 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 right? The moonshots. Uh, that seems like we're missing those. Like we don't have that many. Maybe I don't know. Uh, Spotify, Klarna, like those guys. But like those are the companies really that sort of maybe close the gap or close the loop uh, for that flywheel. Um, it's also interesting to see how um, something like private equity uh, could play a role in something like this. So the recent like pipe drive uh, deal, uh, Vista Equity Partners, they invested I think like 500 million in, in pipe drive, but really, or no more, more than that, sorry. I, I don't have the number, but I do have the evaluation, which was 1.5 billion. Uh, and they became like majority shareholders, which was essentially or almost an acquisition, right? Uh, both Atomico and the Pipedrive founders are staying on uh, sort of a long, as long-term partners. So it's, it's a mix of an acquisition and a sort of an investment round, uh, but a bunch of money uh, also goes out of the company and sort of uh, will fit into the, into the ecosystem. So it's funny how private equity could maybe uh, provide this sort of parallel um, look, like liquidity option. Sure. I, I also like that. I'm just always afraid that, you know, the European model has often been like, okay, we conquer Europe because it's such a fragmented market, but we know how to handle it. 
and then we sell it to a US company that just doesn't want to bother with all the different languages and cultures. And then they do the IPO, but not the European company. So I just wonder, also, if you sell to a private equity company and then they do an IPO, maybe later on or sell it much more expensive later on, I still feel like we, we might, of course, do a, a great job at building these companies, but still sell too early and then like participate in a small party, but not in the big party. Any thoughts on that? No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, like, it's, it's not perfect. Uh, and I don't really have a great answer for this. Um, I think you're right. Like, we need to be mindful or we, we need to give founders the tools um, and that could be capital, it could be resources, it could be whatever, and the incentives for them to just go uh, big so we can be part as an ecosystem of the big party, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And hey, we are based in Switzerland, so of course we also have to ask you about the Swiss ecosystem. So with your perspective as an outsider, how do you perceive the Swiss startup ecosystem? What do you think of it? Um, that's a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a seat table tour early next year. I was going to do it uh, late this year, so 2020. Uh, but unfortunately, the second COVID outbreak came. And one of the sort of the, the goals of that tour is, of course, visiting friends and everything, but uh, just getting more familiar with some of the secondary ecosystems in Europe that really don't get that much attention and they should, sort of they are underrepresented. I think Switzerland is one of them. Um, I'm very, like the numbers look good, but I'm very sort of curious as to what's going on in, in Zurich. Um, for some reason, I've always been uh, attracted to Zurich. Uh, earlier this year, I interviewed the founder of a company uh, that was just recently acquired by Zalando called uh, Meeple. Uh, and I had Ferdinand on the podcast and we had a great conversation and we were talking about sort of the Zurich ecosystem and, and, and how all this sort of is this mix of young startups and then established uh, sort of universities, but also established tech companies like, like Google. And I thought that the combination of all that uh, and the fact that the cost of living is not super affordable makes it for a very interesting tech ecosystem because... I've been, and this is definitely not a proven theory, but I've been rambling about the fact that being a cheap city is not a good thing for a tech system. It's actually a bad thing because you, you do some adverse selection and you sort of pre-filter for people who are not ambitious enough. So for London and Paris to be expensive is actually not a bug, but a feature. So for me, if like that could be the case in, in Zurich, for instance, where you have like all this talent, both from universities, big tech companies and young startups. And you also have a great and beautiful city. You have access to capital and you, you also have a sort of a pretty substantial cost of living then that could be like a good recipe. But that's just like me rambling. Uh, I don't know. That's a really interesting uh, thought. I never thought about it that way, but uh, that's interesting to take away and uh, continue to think in, on our own. So I really like that perspective. I know. We'll, we'll see. Um, I usually come up with crazy ideas, and maybe this is just one of them, and it's very hard to, to prove, uh, but happy to just for someone to, to challenge me. I'm, I'm more than willing to have open conversations in public, and I guess that's, that's what we're doing. Right. And from your outside perspective, what do you think the Swiss startup ecosystem could improve, could do better? Uh, 
PR. <laughs> I think you guys have good stuff going on, uh, but it's one of those sort of undertold stories. Uh, if you think about Estonia, um, like Estonia, yes, the substance there is a great ecosystem, but their sort of their PR and their brand is just incredible, right? I, I uh, when I talk about Tallinn, I, I I call it the the Lord of the Rings effect because it's it's widely overhyped, uh, but it's still sort of under uh represented if that makes sense so it's real really good like or it's overhyped but it's still really, really good uh in your case uh like maybe just hire whoever does the startup estonia stuff and just bring it to switzerland <laughs> who, who would actually be responsible for that from your perspective would that be a government job or is it a job of the startups and the whole ecosystem is is you know as a unity to actually take care of that Ah, yeah, I think like of course it's it's the job of the entire ecosystem. But having one organization, of course, government like public funded organization, startup Estonia is linked to the government. But it's one organization where there's like this team where their sole sort of goal is to grow uh, Estonia as a startup ecosystem, right? So having that uh, act as an umbrella and that as sort of as, as the point person uh, for the ecosystem is super super helpful because. If you're like, if you think about the companies, let's say in, in 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 wherever in Switzerland, like their own sort of, they're incentivized to survive, not to make this space ecosystem better. But if you had like a government uh, sort of funded uh, start startup Switzerland thing, then like they would be incentivized to do it, and like they would spend like twenty four percent thinking about that. Agree, absolutely. So now let's zoom out a bit and look into the future. Um, what is next for you? You are currently working at C-Table. You are working at OnDeck in the growth part. What is next for Gons as a person? What do you want to tackle next? Yeah, so uh, I just uh, joined OnDeck. I'm incredibly excited about the what we're doing and what we're building. Hopefully, I stay uh, at OnDeck for many years to come. But I also want to keep working on C-Table. Uh, C-Table is fun. I want to keep writing. I want to keep having interesting conversations. Uh, and I've been doing some sort of small angel investments here and there. And I'd love to do more over the next coming years. So partner more with entrepreneurs and founders. Uh, that's what I really enjoy. That, that was, that's one of the reasons why I wake up in the mornings. Uh, my sort of, my I don't want to say my personal mission, but a question I've been obsessed about is how can we help more people start more companies? And on deck is very aligned with that. C table is very aligned with that. And now I want to align myself with that. So uh, maybe uh, keep 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 going on that path and then uh, keep doing more investments. I think that's that's what's next. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe let's talk six months from now. Maybe I want to leave by the beach and start a bar or something. <laughs> Yeah, fair point. So we're curious to see what you have in the making. So that was it with my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to add to today's episode that we haven't talked about yet? No, I think just uh, really thank you for having me. It's great having like being able to have these conversations. Um, but no, I think we covered pretty much everything. And if you have any other questions, like feel free to just let me know. Awesome. Gons, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure talking to you. And we wish you on deck, but also, of course, Seat Table all the best. And I really encourage everybody who hasn't checked you out yet, look at Seat Table and subscribe. It's a fantastic newsletter. The pleasure was mine. Thank you so much. This 
episode was brought to you by Swisspreneur's main partner, Clara Business, the digital all-in-one solution for small businesses. Managing internal processes manually and on paper wastes an incredible amount of time. That's why Clara digitizes everything, allowing you to focus on what really matters, your core business. Go to clara.ch to find out how your business administration can be simpler, faster, and more efficient. Again, that's clara.ch.